You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garrisonovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University, studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, a literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know to understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, what are we getting into this week? This week, we're going to be going through Bulgakov's kinkiest part of The Master (laughs) and Margarita, covering chapters 18 through 25. Mm -hmm. This time, it's Margarita, Margarita's version. (laughs) She's living it up in Margaritaville. In (laughs) Margaritaville. Both the kinkiest and also less, much less kinky than expected on at least Margarita's part, and perhaps the reader's part, depending on their presumptions about a devil's ball. Um, but many of the, <laughs> I would say, many of Mar- Master Margarita's most standout and most uh, well remembered elements and parts come from this section of the novel. So, for those of you who have gotten over the usual, like you know, mid long series slump and still turn on this episode. Thank you for coming in, but also just know that you've come to the most exciting part of Master and Margarita, as uh, I determined by historical memory. Yes, and historical memory never fails us. This part, I kind of like, I, I don't know, I felt like I was slumping on the in the last part that we were doing. And then I got to this part, and I remembered, oh yeah, I forgot that all of this happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this really builds on why this very strange and wonderful novel is so well remembered, because it just around every corner, it's just so... It keeps being weird, and you think, okay, I've got a hold on it. All right, the, the devil's going around Moscow ripping people's heads off and playing jokes on people. And, well, now it's time for a witch's ball. So it's going to get weirder. Yeah, it kind of, I think it starts on a much more literary level in, in a lot of ways. And then and then it just goes, it goes weird, and then it gets weirder, and then it ends at the weirdest point. Right. And I like that. And, I, yeah, I think you made a good I like your phrasing there. We've talked previously about Thank how... You. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's very <laughs> unexpected for me to be agreeing with you on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I think we've talked previously about the kind of fantastical elements of Moscow, and that was mostly in relation to kind of this interesting dichotomy of the fantastical Moscow and then like the relatively realistic, and in quotes there, uh, Jerusalem segments. And and now we're taking yes. that fantastical element and we're turning it to 11 and going full fairy tale. Uh, which is something we'll talk about more later. But before we talk about what happens in this part, we re- we're really building up. Is there anything you want to cover? You know, I, I don't have anything specific other than I I really, this <laughs> this is a favorite of mine. Yeah. This part was fun. I agree. I mean, some of the best lines in the book come from this part. Um, of obviously, the famous manuscript Stone Burn, but my, one of my personal favorite is, uh, well, we'll get to it eventually, but about the behemoth offering margarita pure uh alcohol i think is maybe one of my best remembered like in all all of literature and everything i've ever read that moment lives in my mind much more alive than almost any other moment of comedy in a novel yeah i i i read this freshman year when i was an undergrad and i missed all and i mean all 100 percent of the sexual innuendo in this part of the book one hundred thousand percent of it yeah and i'm going to uncomfortably talk about it later as well <laughs> yeah i'm glad you took the you took a bullet for the team and read that that uh paper and are bringing it in 
Um, I kept stumbling across this paper every single time I would be in my library's database digging up <laughs> stuff to research, and I thought, that is ridiculous. It just, it seems so out of left field, and then I read it, and I was like, that was actually a really insightful paper. <laughs> I kind of, like, opened it thinking, like, oh, I don't really know how useful this is going to be. I don't really want to talk about this. Right. Um, and, and it ended up being good, so. And uh, on top of that. There are probably some other really good, important things going on in this book because I have some notes furiously scribbled down in my margins. And when I went to compile them a week later into our prep doc, I said, I don't know what I was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So just know that there is some secret forbidden knowledge, which uh, Matt once held but is now lost to the cosmos yeah yeah it's uh yeah it, it's lost you're gonna have to get on your your witch's broom and try to get up there and recover it <laughs> yeah, we're, gonna, we're gonna have to have we're gonna have to go through a whole thing with volin and one of us go into a ball in order to get that back out of the fireplace it's a but disaster yeah well anyways i'm ready i'm ready to stand at the top of a staircase let's go let's do it so speaking of margarita's version as matt brought up earlier we now in book two Uh, almost 200 pages into this novel maybe more depending on the copy you're in we finally are meeting the titular margarita (laughs) we're very timely novel so we we start off with basically the same story that the master told us in the last part of how she and the master meet again from from her perspective up until the point where um the master disappears and and her life goes on until uh, she catches up with the rest of the novel, but really all you need to know is that she's had a wonderful, um, yet very unhappy life. Um, it's always been very, uh, for the Soviet Union, pretty opulent. Uh, she's been well-connected. She married very young at 19 to a very uh, highly positioned person, and and she's never been happy for like even a single day. Uh, she hadn't been happy for even a minute, the text says, since marrying at age 19 and going to live in her husband's house. Um, so she we we carry once the master disappears uh she's not having a good time she's having a pretty rough go of it and the story catches up to her one day she's kind of sitting outside um and just just reflecting on how unhappy she is with her life and then suddenly uh, as she's watching a funeral go by the funeral for as we know Berlioz, uh this kind of strange person sits down with her and starts uh you know offering her a way to uh, get the master back. And at first she doesn't believe this person and uh, immediately thinks that he's here to arrest her. And this, you know, short redhead says, what is it with people around here? As soon as you start talking to them, they think you're going to arrest them. I simply have some business to discuss with you. And we're going to find out that this is Azazello. Um, and he, he basically tells her, look, if you, if you come into this thing for, you know, for, you know, a master, uh, we, you can get the master the master your master back and he offers her a gold jar some simple instructions to put the ointment uh, inside on her body at exactly 9 30 and so that time that night she does and suddenly she feels all this stress all the aging that has happened to her of, of in the last couple of months it suddenly disappears and she feels like she's not only does she look younger but she feels much more alive like life force has been refer- returned to her uh, and she's like oh my dream is coming true and she writes a goodbye note to her husband uh, and her maid Natasha comes in and is like, whoa, what happened? And uh, Margarita says, look, take whatever you want. Uh, I don't care. I'm going away. And she, uh, a broom, a wooden broom, it appears at her window, and she takes flight into the night and flies out far outside of Moscow uh, to a sort of uh, 
little party, I guess, in the in the forests outside Moscow. Uh, uh, frogs and other forest creatures are playing a symphony, which he stops in and listens and, and meets who uh, many creatures who kind of call her a queen, and, and she's the star of this little party out here. And uh, uh, until uh, that kind of ends, and a sort of cat-like man who we understand to be Behemoth and a, another a courtier help her into a flying car, which takes her back to Moscow to get ready for the ball itself. And she goes to the, I will say, the devil's apartment loosely here. Um, I think it's this is still Berlioz's apartment, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I might be mistaken. I forget exactly who it is. You know, he's moving from apartment to apartment, and there she meets uh, Volan's retinue. She meets Koroviev, she meets Behemoth. You know, and they kind of begin to explaining things to her in this apartment, which, as she goes deeper in, begins to realize that its proportions are increasingly impossible. Um, and uh, they begin to tell her more about what's going on. They say, this is every year the devil, Voland, uh, gives the spring ball, the full moon, or the ball of a hundred kings. And every year, uh, Volan needs a hostess for the ball, and she must be named Margarita, and she must be a native of wherever the ball is being held. This year, the ball is being held in Moscow, and, well, so we must need a Muscovite named Margarita. And they tell her, would you believe that there are 130-something Margaritas in Moscow, and not a single one other than you are qualified for this role? Um, especially because Margarita is of royal blood, um, and it's... Koroviev implies that she's the descendant of some 16th century French queen. Um, and he's like, oh, I've heard that too. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty, yeah, I've, I've run across that every once in a while. You know, you just, you just mm-hmm. have royal blood in you sometimes. Mm-hmm. So they go to Volan's room and although it's really uh, ostentatiously decorated, it's not like, I guess, overly ostentatious. It's not, um, I don't know, in poor taste. Uh, and inside all the rest of the retinues there and Voland is lying in the bed not in amazing uh, overflowing opulence as you might expect from the devil in his in his abode but rather is in a very dirty nightshirt uh just lying in the bed playing chess with behemoth as hella was the red-haired um woman with the mark across her neck who we've 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 been encountering on the side up through this book and she's rubbing kind of a salve on his knee um and they go to have more of a conversation he amazes her with some of his you know wonderful things he shows her a war happening on a, on, a, on a globe she sees a mother and child die on it really fun times um from there the retinue take margarita and they wash her in blood and i they dress her i say dress loosely that they put like uh jewelry on her but she's otherwise naked um and they take her to the ballroom which is this well several ballrooms which is this really fantastical each room has its own like a, a jungle theme or it's a you know sort of i don't know think romanesque is the right word but like this you know big pool of champagne in these each of these different rooms uh and they finally lead her to the top of a staircase and as they stand there coffins begin emerging from a fireplace at the very bottom and, and people begin pulling themselves out kind of corpses who as they begin to get out they sort of return to a semblance of humanity and all the men get out are wearing these very elaborate suit tails and all the women are naked, save for shoes and feathers on their head. Interesting. Uh, well, I guess it is a witch's ball of a sort. And as they're coming up, Koroviev uh, kind of whispers in Margarita's ear who each of these people are. Many famous, I think, uh, Caligula, Kaiser are, are mentioned among these people. Um, and they've all 
you know, we understand that these are all people who are in hell for one reason or another. A lot of poisoners among them. A lot of people who, who poison a lot of people or otherwise killed a lot of people. Um, and they, they greet the coming guests, including one who we'll come back to, uh, who goes by the name Frida, who is being tortured forever by uh, always awaking wherever she is with a handkerchief beside her bed, although she otherwise lives a pretty, uh, seems nice afterlife other than this, which comes from the fact that she gave birth to a child she did not want, stuffed the handkerchief in its mouth and buried it. And uh, Margarita kind of seems to take pity on her, especially, you know, in relation to it's kind of I think it's kind of implied that uh, the baby was born as a result of rape. And so Margarita's like, well, what happened to the guy, the other guy? And, you know, all the, the retinue kind of brush that question off. So she takes interest in this one particular person, which we'll come back to. The rest of the ball happens after she, you know, greets all these people and eventually Voland enters and we go through, he enters not as you might imagine in tales like everyone else, but he enters in that same dirty nightgown. Um, and they have a moment where uh, Berlioz's head is brought on a platter to the devil who then kind of monologues at it and says, look, um, it's interesting that you're here. You know, your theory is that there's nothing happened after death. And well, hey, look, one theory is as good as the next. So who's to say that they can't be true? Let's have your theory come true and you will be basically destroyed forever. And he, this head, which up to this point, despite being on a platter, has been um, somewhat articulate, clearly aware, uh, dissolves more or less or turns to dust. And uh, <clears throat> this part was great. <laughs> it's a good it's a good part. I, I, I laugh every time that they wheel his head out. <laughs> right. Um, and, and speaking of people uh, being killed, another man uh, who Margarita recognizes uh, has, is sort of the director of, of bringing foreigners into the Moscow is brought out and Volan basically tells him, hey, just so you know, you're being suspected and you're going to be arrested as a spy within the month. And well, luckily for you, you're down here to spy on us too. So why don't we go ahead and speed things up and we'll just go ahead and kill you now. And suddenly he is shot and dies on the spot. At which point, Voland, who is now out of nowhere wearing a long black robe, offers a goblet to Margarita. She drinks of it, and then she here in the distance hears roosters crowing, and the ball kind of falls away. It literally decays around her. Um, at that point, uh, the the ballroom, which has closed in all these fantastical, um, amazing decorations and rooms, return to more or less their previous size. At least their previously impossibly large per the proportions of the apartment but not impossibly large in the sense that it's like amazingly large uh, apartment and she returns to the devil and his retinue sitting in another room and they they chat uh, they go through a couple little scenes of engagement with each of these individual uh, with Azello with behemoth uh, until finally it's like time for margarita kind of to go and she despite being promised that she will get the master return to her if she does this she realizes that apparently nothing is forthcoming and uh she says well um I guess I'll go. And she says, I guess I'll go drown myself. And the devil says, great. Good to have you here. And she pauses again and says, uh, and thanks him for letting her be the host of this year's ball. And at that point, the devil kind of laughs and says, ah, we were testing you. Uh, we know what we promised you. But of course, you must never ask powerful people for uh, something. You must wait until it is granted upon you. So now that you have passed our test, I grant upon you. What would you like from me? One particular thing. And in this moment, Margarita thinks to the master and then she, and says, she says, "I would like three more wishes, please." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> she figured out. She figured out the the way to work around that all the genies hate, and the genies don't want you to know. But you can totally ask for more wishes. And the devil exploded, and then the book ended. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and think of the master. She then says, "I want uh, Frida to stop being tortured by this 
handkerchief forever. And the devil kind of says, look, um, it's very nice of you, but that's not really my department. That's not really my thing. But that is your thing. You have the power to do that, actually. And Margarita finds she, she does, and she forgives Frida and uh, frees her from this burden. And Volan says, look, all right, so we got that. You did it yourself. You still have one wish. What would you like? And this time, don't be so frivolous with it. And Margarita says, this time, I would like the master back. And almost as if out of thin air, he suddenly appears, apparently very confused. He, For him, he goes right from being inside the asylum to being in this room with strange people. And after they... Yeah, I'd be a little confused, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, given that he thinks he's mentally unstable, I can see why suddenly appearing in a room with like a bunch of fantastical characters might seem like, oh, I may not necessarily be seeing this. Who's to say? Who's to say? But, in fact, he is actually there. And uh, they kind of sit down, and Volan's like, why is why do they call you the master? Why does why does Margarita call you the master? And the master says, oh, that's just a silly name. It's because I was writing a novel that you liked about Pontius Pilate. And Volan's like, no shit, really? Uh, where <laughs> Can I read it? And the master says, no, I, you can't. I, I burned it. And then Voland utters the famous lines, which if you are this far in the podcast, I am absolutely certain you already know. Uh, and he said, well, that's not possible because manuscripts don't burn. And then Behemoth jumps down. And a bunch of air horns go off. (laughs) John Cena's theme song is playing, which is anachronistic and really weird. (laughs) Um, It's crazy how how much foresight that Bulgakov had, including that in the in the book. It really gives it a timeless feel. Bulgakov started essentially all internet meme culture. Right. Yeah. From that line, not many people know that the intro that John Cena's intro is written by Bulgakov. But uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that Bulgakov actually birthed John Cena. So. <laughs> <laughs> so once, yeah, once Bulgakov does write John Cena into existence, but that's a later, that comes later in the book. Um, that's a few chapters after <laughs> this. Uh, Behemoth jumps down from his chair to reveal that he's sitting on a stack of manuscripts, which end up being uh, all the complete manuscripts of, of the master's work. Um, and at that point, they also kind of fix things and they say, all right, you're, all your, the records of you being put in the asylum are gone. Uh, that guy who moved into your apartment, who who took advantage of your misfortune, uh, he's also gone now. And if anyone asks, say, who? who? Uh, do you have any paperwork to prove this person exists? And you're going to find they're not going to have that paperwork. And you're going to convince them that they are crazy for thinking that anyone else ever lived here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then returns them to their their apartment. Or rather, they, they leave by car. This time, they're not traveling um by by instantaneous teleportation perhaps for the benefit of a woman upstairs who sees them all leave this impossible part this strange uh, cavalcade of people uh <laughs> as she watches from a distance and they drop her off by car margarita and, and the master i mean and uh in the very last moments of this part uh, margarita begins to read through the manuscript and uh you, you might imagine you might understand what happens next as the first lines of the manuscript she starts reading becomes the uh transportation to jerusalem in the next chapter but that is a matter for Whoa. our next episode. A little, little tease forward, if you will. Um, I will. So a lot of, uh, of, of interesting things happens in this part. Many uh, iconic moments. Is there anywhere you want to start in particular? I would love to start by taking a quick break. Okay. We'll be back in just a second. Yes, good point. This episode was brought to you by our listeners. You can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slaviclitpod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all the secondary sources mentioned. 
If you want to support the show but don't want to spend any of your hard-earned devil's wishes, you can join our email list for free at SlavicLitPod.com or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. I love reading those little reviews. (laughs) (laughs) They really, they brighten our day every time. And uh, if you want to also brighten our day and you have maybe a question, a comment, or you want to appear on our Office Hours podcasts, and by the way, one of those coming up soon, you should drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944, or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at slaviclitpod at gmail.com. We'll bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it. All right. Back to Wasting Away and the Master in Margaritaville. <laughs> Every time you say that, it still gets me. I feel like it should, it should by all <laughs> rights, get old, but it really doesn't. Yeah. Um, so yeah. do you want to start at the most uncomfortable uh, parts uh, for our parents that listen to our, this episode? And let's talk yeah, about... <laughs> I, yeah, I, I took a picture and put this on our, our Instagram story, and my, my little sister sent me... She like sent me a message and she said, I'm telling mom. <laughs> 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 Uh, yeah, so if when uh, uh, Mrs. Garasimovich comes to this part, I would in- in invite you to uh, uh, listen to what your son has to say. I'm sure it will be uh, very not at all embarrassing for the coming Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah, well, fortunately, <laughs> what could be more embarrassing than family themselves, you know? <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. You just give uh, hand true. out enough uh, drinks to everyone and that problem, well, the problem of this solves itself. A couple new ones emerge, but hey. <laughs> yeah, that one individual. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is a pretty recent piece. This is 2018 by Zachary Johnson. And it is a piece called Margarita's Orgasms, reading the erotic in Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita. And I just, I'll just say like when you compare this to everything else that comes up in our library, when you search Master and Margarita, it's everything else is like so uh boring compared to this title i will say not maybe the articles are interesting i don't know but i I would say in terms of titling this one is uh you know definitely the best well i've got a couple other articles open and one of them among them it's things like theme and coherence bulgakov's the master and margarita or master and margarita masking the supernatural and uh good articles in their own right this one definitely does have an edge over them in terms of, oh, that's interesting. It sure does have an edge, Cameron. Thank you for that lead-in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there's a couple different arguments being made in this paper. And if you have the chance to read it, I would. It's only like 15, 16 pages, and it's actually pretty It's pretty easy, I would say, as far as uh, some articles go. Uh, challenging, but the writing is very clear. It's good. And... So it starts off on the premise uh, that Bulgakov describing Margarita as both naked and invisible, it sort of gives you a cue in for some sort of erotic reading because of the fact that you are picturing this woman naked rubbing uh, ointment or lotion on herself, looking at herself in front of the mirror as she's doing it. Uh, but it immediately revokes that privilege from you because she's invisible, right? So no, you can't, you can't see her. Uh, but it, you know, it, it reoccurs, right? Uh, there's, you know, mentions again, as you start to forget that she's naked, it, it comes back up and up and up. And this sort of conversation that she has as, as an example, where Azazello as a stranger is, uh, you know, inviting her and she still repeatedly interprets his invitation as sexual, 
there is you know also the scene where she's you know like sitting naked in her window like beckoning one of her neighbors right there's like a lot of these instances with her which are you know sort of invite this sort of reading and Bulgakov a lot of times you know shuts it down he does this in other parts of the novel as well but this particular this particular scene can be read a lot of different ways right so uh Azizello is is inviting her to to the to the ball with with Voland and she's interpreting this as some sort of um some sort of sexual advance and he says no this person you know could have essentially any woman he wants but that's really not what uh, that's really not what he's here for. And then Marguerite is almost offended. She's like, really, what kind of person is this? Um, <laughs> which is actually just a really funny response, right? As he, it, you know, Bulgakov shuts down the reading for you and then like reopens it with Margarita, right? It's just a really funny <laughs> thing that uh, comes up in, in the conversation. right? And so there's a lot of word choice and play that is uh, I- indicative that something sexual is happening in, in, in this. And, you know, I'll just... I'll say a few of those things because when when you say them back to back, it kind of makes sense, right? Um, she's naked. She's looking at herself in front of the mirror. She's rubbing herself with, with lotion and ointment. And then she's riding around in this sort of, you know, heightened perceptual ecstatic state uh, around Moscow on a broomstick, um, which, which lends itself to a certain shape, shall we say. Um, so... This, if I'll just, sorry, back up one second. I missed one quick point on the Azazel thing here. Uh, this takes place in, actually in a garden, uh, which is, of course, overly symbolic of these, you know, sort of idea of temptation and specifically sexual temptation. Uh, and so this sort of sets the scene for the Margarita uh, escapade, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, and so this whole, this whole scene is very interesting because as zachary johnson notes a lot of the sexual readings of master and margarita are not really uh things that people care about or they're not really they're kind of sidestepped i would say in a lot of scholarly things in in a lot of scholarly works Mm. because uh, I, I don't know why, because maybe they're not what people see as the most important or they don't work with exactly whatever argument people are foisting upon the novel, right? So there's kind of a lack of this discussion in scholarship. And so that's interesting to bring up. And the fact that it takes us until 2018 to bring up, that's interesting. Right. Uh, you know, there there might be more. Uh, there might be more that I have personally missed. I, I don't know 100%. Um, there, there could be people that have addressed this, but I don't know if it's, you know, as adequate of an address, right? So it's an interesting article from that regard. So the reason that this ends up being a sort of transgressive act, uh, especially in in the Soviet Union here, and why it becomes interesting for us as readers is kind of the effect that it gives a sort of power dynamic in a lot of ways that uh, it enacts uh, and Johnson says that this results in almost a sort of jealous love triangle uh, between the reader, uh, specifically on the idea of pleasure, right? Uh, this triangle between the reader, Margarita, and the master. So he finishes the novel, but neither Margarita 
nor us as the reader get to read it. So Margarita and the reader's satisfaction are intertwined, yet they are indefinitely postponed. Uh, and so he draws this really interesting, I thought, um, analogy or like the way he says that um, the satisfaction of reading and the sort of almost sexual satisfaction of Margarita in the novel are like intertwined. Um, and so he says that uh, masturbation, which is actually in the Soviet Union identified with individualism and viewed as very bad uh, in the novel, it's sort of almost combined with the satisfaction that we as the reader derive from the act of reading itself. It sort of constitutes, he says, a subversive appropriation of Soviet power, which is a really fascinating way to read this part, I thought. Mm. I did not get there on my own. There were, uh, I'll say, I noticed uh, a lot on my own read through this time. The other, like, interesting part that I saw in this that I don't think was mentioned in this paper, but when Natasha flies up to Margarita and confesses that she also took some of the cream, um, she's flying around on uh, a man that had propositioned her for sex that had turned that she had turned into a hog and he refers to her as goddess and there's this all this sort of uh, strange power dynamic that emerges uh through this um the sort of taking back of some of the power of this right servant girl who's propositioned for sex who instead is um inversely conversely right turned into uh one of the devil's witches and is flying around moscow with the person that um you know she was working for Mm. and so this is this paper that I read for this episode, and I'm glad I finally got to read it. Uh, one, so it will ha- it will stop haunting me in my library searches, but two, because I think it is a very interesting reading of this part. That is, especially um, you bring as you were speaking. I was thinking about this example of Natasha and almost the way, especially to the point that was made here in this paper about masturbation being sort of like an, an assertion of oneself of like mm-hmm. a, a an act that is in, in inherently individualistic as as the paper terms it um i think there's also something to be said for kind of the i don't know if i'd call this like a feminist reading but the assertion of like the agency of in this case it's natasha's agency where in terms of like sexual relationships the only one i think there i mean there's obviously lots of implications but the only one that i think up to this point is mentioned in the book like it kind of explicitly is the powerful the guy in the in the theater at the variety theater who is revealed as cheating on his wife um right. and kind of like with some young actress and he's giving her roles in exchange for it and that kind of comes up so you have what i will loosely term like what you could understand a kind of more traditional i don't know if that's the right term like power dynamic uh, right you understand this sort of like sexual quid pro quo sort of where in this case natasha when she is propositioned by this downstairs neighbor, um, she, you know, she's already put the cream on herself and she spears the cream on him and turns him into a hog. Um, this is sort of like an assertion of her own agency here, right? She doesn't, she's not interested. And in fact, she then torments this man for, for this. And like you said, he, he calls her, he's calling her goddess. But at at this point, you know, when they pull up alongside her, the hog is like, you know, you know, Margarita, please save me from this maid. And Natasha is like, ah, so I'm just a maid now, a maid, huh? She's like literally tweaking his ear. Didn't I used to be goddess? What was it you called me? 
Um, and so not only so the sort of like assertion of her control over this sexuality that this this man has nothing to offer, even though he so he literally he offers her not just he's not just propositioning her. He's basically offering her lots of money and, and prestige and he's giving her sort of a similar deal. And she says, uh, I, I'm not in a position where that's something that I need to do. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a witch now. And both her and um, Margarita being witches, I think also kind of connects them to that sort of sort of subversive sexuality in one way. I don't think the witchiness is inherently tied to it, but it runs parallel to it. The the fact that they're both now witches also takes them away from like good, quote unquote, Moscow society of the upstanding citizens who are just going about their days being tormented by by these things. I mean, by by being witches, they are able to assert themselves and they become highly respected. The the devil's retinue um for not so much for Natasha when she she joins the story later is just sort of a as as almost a maid again but right like they're they are highly respected going from being almost unknowns before for you know these features of themselves this sort of their this their ability their powers their 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 own self-worth in a way it's it's that it's not these other external things for which they are, are valued um it's things that are inherent to them and in margarita's case yeah maybe a little royal blood which is its own thing but you know what else is interesting on the occult aspect too tell me more is when you when you mentioned margarita forgiving uh, right like her act of forgiveness is what sets this woman free it's just so interesting the uh, essentially that what sets this woman free is this it's what would be considered like a very quintessentially christian aspect uh or christian aspect the just the emphasis on forgiveness in christianity right and for that to be associated again with the witch right some some sort of occult symbol is again morally ambiguous right which is kind of the theme of the whole book right you know you you can be more than just good or evil uh you can be divergent essentially right. <laughs> um. yeah i mean it's i think it, it goes beyond it's also it's forgiveness but it's also charity it's also self-sacrifice other classic christian mm-hmm. themes where mm-hmm. she has this moment where she she thinks her one chance to get the master back and she uses it on on this on this woman who is obviously was in a bad spot not without sin but she's like it's that's not the important part the important part is like you said forgiveness um, and that is, it is important we offer that to people, even if that is at the cost of me not seeing the master again and, and that charity that goes along with it. You know what I love so much about this particular scene? It's such like a moral center of the novel for me because when I read this and then the devil says, no, like you can do that yourself. Just forgive her. Use your wish on something good. <laughs> Use it on something you want. Right. Um, you as the reader identify and you say, yeah, that's, that is right. That is fair because she used her wish on something good. Now she should get something for herself. Right. I mean, am I the only one like, uh, like reading through where you can like see where that comes from? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I think a lot of people would, would like fall, would fall into that. Um, the idea of just doing self-sacrificial things forever over and over until you die, that would be hard. I know that's right that's like the I, that's the point right is in this tradition that's what you're supposed to do but it's not what people do but it is what happens here and she's rewarded for it and i think as an as an interesting side point in kind of that reward almost for this sort of selfless action although i i suppose the devil would deny that those things are connected like the devil i know we've talked about this before but continues to exist as this really odd character where he just very much exists outside of 
you know, of like traditional depictions of devil, of devilry and other novels and other pieces about the devil, um, him offering, let me bring back your greatest desire would have unintended consequence. It would be what you're going to have to give me your soul or whatever. This devil? Nope. All right. You came to my ball. It wasn't even especially like the devil's ball. Yeah. We got all these sinners here and all these murderers, poisoners, Kaisars, whatever, um, it's relatively, I mean, constrained ball by all means. You might imagine kind of a eyes wide shot, you know, devilry. But other than like the washing in blood, they're mostly just like eating food, swimming in champagne pools, having a good time. Um, and then without, right, I mean, uh, so far, but without a parent. She didn't even have to beat him in a fiddle battle. And quite frankly, <laughs> that's what I was expecting. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, when, yeah, when you, when you go in there, you really expect... That uh, that she's gonna have to best in the bat. No, no fiddle battle. No, no. She, he he never said he's the best there's ever been. So it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> you've got this very interesting, I don't know, almost stranger devil for that fact, and also kind of this acknowledgement when he says that this forgiveness that's not my department. And maybe you could read that as like, well, that's more you know, that's the big man upstairs. After all, we, we do know that Voland is is and uh, does believe that a god exists. It's apparently outside. No, it's not the big man upstairs because he assigns it to. Yeah, Margarita. it does. Well, that's you might read it that way, but he, it's. I don't think. I don't think that's how it's meant to be read. He's. It's almost like kind of, you know, he's not all powerful. Yeah. He's just yeah. a guy. <laughs> this he's guy. He oversees one department, and his strange little retinue in in that department going around causing trouble. Yeah, and I, I don't know. He's so funny in this part. Like, he was like, oh, you burned your manuscript? Have you checked behind your ear? Like, that's <laughs> essentially what he does. Right. <laughs> like, I didn't know that was so yeah. funny to me. <laughs> uh, but also, I think the way he kills, uh, I think it's, I forget the guy's name, but it's Marshall something or other, the person who is maybe a spy in Moscow, but is definitely a spy down here uh, at this ball. Um, he kind of passes judgment on him in like a more traditional way. He's just like, you you i don't know you've broken trust um but also you're probably going to face their worst fate upstairs when you go back in a month so uh let me go ahead and kind of dole out a sense of justice here and your idea of justice may differ that being shot to death is a fair (laughs) but you know there's like a sense of i think right there like there is a sense of justice being carried out a sort of a style of it at least Mm mm-hmm for sure which i don't know creates such a odd like you say funny character especially that he's not as overly grand. He's walking around in a dirty, you know, evening shirt for most of this part. Mm-hmm. Did you read anything? Yes. By chance. So I was I read for this part, I read uh Fairy Tale Elements in Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita by Sonia Hoisington. And uh I think this is interesting. And so w- what Hoisington defines as uh well, taking it, I think this is a secondhand definition, but Hoisington defines it as a narrative which is tied neither to the conditions of the real world nor to those of a possible world and which consequently depicts a miraculous uh, depicts the miraculous with the same obviousness as reality in a spatial temporal and causal sense it is thus the purest expression of fantasy and and by doing that it allows to you to convey sort of a relatively straightforward right and wrong despite you know by in this heightened sense um you you've got these like traditional tropes that you probably understand you've got the the good characters and you've got the bad characters and the the evil may have you know get one over on the good ones but eventually the hero is rewarded right and the evil person or the evil people get uh you know a justly deserved fate uh now this is a sort of a complicated version of that however that sort of morality i think is does exist in this part right up to this point in 
the sections in which we're in Moscow, we have this sort of fantastical element, which comes to its natural, uh, I don't know, maybe not natural, but comes to its apotheosis in in this element of, of going to the ball because you've got all the, you've literally it opens up on her becoming a witch and then she flies <laughs> through Moscow and takes revenge, by the way, I don't think we mentioned this, takes revenge on Latunsky, uh, or Latunsky, I forget his name, Latunsky, who uh, was the critic that led to the master's downfall. She smashes up his apartment with a hammer on the way out of Moscow um, and uh, probably would have caved to Skolin if he was there that night, but uh, luckily for him, he was not. Uh, and she goes there to you know, a bunch of frogs playing flutes for her, then to you know the devil's, the devil's ball in an impossibly large apartment, which, she's got, which she goes to or arrives in a flying car. Right? This is... This, the, the, in the, the supernatural is on the exact same level as the normal reality and in some ways is kind of less false than normal reality there's all these these compromises which she has to make in her normal life which is uh torn away in this part in this part she is uh queen margot and that is all that is important and she lives kind of like a straight face she can be and uh, and kind of who she wants to be in a sense she's obviously playing a role but all, all these other things are stripped away and we kind of come to a uh i think in a way, in the same way we've been talking about the uh, the like sort of sexual themes here relate to sort of a freedom of like individualism in these characters in a, in a sort of way which allows them to be themselves, uh, which Soviet society in this text does not allow them to be. The same is true for uh, for the fairy tale in this part, right? I mean, she's fully away from not even just like specifically criticism of the USSR, but the things that make her unhappy, this unhappy marriage, these, this wonderful life, which is therefore already still empty, lacking in really what it seems like she's really interested in is mastery of things. It's, there's one part where uh, later on, Azazello shows that he's very good at the handgun, and they, they joke around that he, he mostly shoots at targets he can't see because anyone can hit a target they can see, so they keep hiding things and he keeps hitting them. And it's no, noted that she like really is like, really impressed and and the text notes that well marguerite is just really impressed with mastery um and so sort of this i don't know this assertion of of herself this this freedom which comes with being a witch uh these all these elements i think despite being less realistic in a sense become much more heightened by this sense of unreality uh and the kind of mm, i don't know moral themes almost become more clear in contrast to this more muddled uh, life in Moscow in a sort of almost paradoxical way, which I think I'm diverging from um, diverging from the argument that Hosington, Hosington makes. Uh, but in, in talking about sort of this interesting function that fairy tales plays in oddly making things more clear, or at least attempting to make things more clear, um, I think it, it carries that. I think it carries that forward successfully. I could see it. That's interesting. That's that's what I had to say. I mean, I, it, this is a funny part, even outside of all that. I mean, I think oh, I also I think I mentioned this at the top of the episode, but I would like to bring in one of my favorite lines that I've ever read in literature, which is after the mm-hmm. ball, uh, uh, Behemoth offers uh, Margarita uh, a shot glass or a small glass of filled with clear liquid, and Margarita sniffs and says, "Is this vodka?" And the cat off, acts offended and says, "My word, no! I would never give vodka to a lady. That's pure alcohol." <laughs> <laughs> um off topic but man i just uh I, that is i think one of my favorite favorite lines yeah yeah it's a strange part that's good. but also i think the moral clarity in this part and sort of the moral center of this part is really apparent as you as you said 
Yeah, it's the uh, in my mind, it's like the most most crazy, fantastical. It's the fun, one of the funniest parts, but it's also one of the most challenging parts because you get I, I don't know. I think that even though I like when the plot lines kind of go back and forth, I do think that having everything kind of in in the way that we've sort of chosen to break up artificially this part it's not a part in a book in the book it's just how we've chosen for the podcast i i think reading it in this kind of sectioned off piece was an interesting way to do it just to keep it on one plot line just kind of keep that focus and even even though it does kind of take place in two places uh is still kind of to me sort of centers what that main moral issue is or the moral issues are because there's there's multiple right, right. but so good good on us good really. on yeah great great that we we uh obviously made this decision fully knowing that and when we broke this right. up mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah uh, yeah 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 also i, I burly was a severed head such a like you said funny part also interesting that volant kind of weird like grants him his own you know he, he Berlioz, owes i think interestingly he's obviously quite dogmatic and says this is the way it is and volan says hey it could be any number of ways and hey maybe you're right about that being a theory that you could subscribe to and maybe it is true and let it be true for you so volan kind of comes in with this um i don't know aff- affirmation of the possibility of Berlioz's beliefs in the worst possible way for him <laughs> telling letting him know that there's also alternatives yeah I th- he carries out he carries out Berlioz's dogmatism to its, you know, logical conclusion, more or less, and says, well, wouldn't it have been nice if you left some room for literally any other interpretation, <laughs> right? right. You'll be, you'll be, it's almost like a, you'll be hung on the own, your gallows that you've built for others, almost. Right, right. And that, yeah, that's, I just think it's a really interesting way, and we'll see more and more and more towards the end, but just the... The, the way the book itself is sort of a self-referential system uh, in, in the way that people come back and arguments come back and like almost in kind of an offhand way. And that just to me, it, it makes it so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I know for anyone else who's read this part, there are some individual elements we may not have addressed. There we could, I think we could keep litigating many more minor points. Uh, you know, this whole ball is so overwhelming with detail that I think it almost you have the same effect that Margarita has when she feels overwhelmed and, and lost. You as the reader feel that too. But I feel like we've covered the big things from this part. Unless there's anything else you want to address before we start wrapping up. No, I got to talk about that one paper that I wanted to. And that that was that was what I wanted to talk about this time. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, thank you for bringing the, the really interesting one. The, the, one, the one that sure. will be remembered by most people who walk away from this episode. The one that will haunt you forever. <laughs> Or maybe you'll think, wow, that was really interesting. Good thing Matt talked about it. He's he's a genius, and I'm going to listen to his podcast forever. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, something like that. Well, uh, before we uh, go on with the usual banter for an elongated period of time, and before we completely wrap up, I have to ask you, Matt, what are we tackling next time? Next episode. We're going to be... Did you write this part of the script? We're going to be getting <laughs> weird with yeah. it. In office hours, <laughs> we haven't made a plan yet for office hours. I'm just predicting that we're going to sound get... like we're going to make like we're going to commit a crime. <laughs> you know, next time on office hours, we are just going to record ourselves robbing a bank, and uh... yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, but uh... you know, I- I'm looking forward to office hours. I had so much fun doing our first one, and we still 
need help from you, our listeners, if you want to make these fun. Join our Discord. We have a whole channel there that is just dedicated to us farming reaction bait content <laughs> uh, related to reading, books, education, Russian literature. It is there to ruin my mm-hmm. day. When people put things in that channel, my day should be ruined. <laughs> so come join that channel. Well, come join our whole Discord. Right. That channel is really fun. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately for you, you cannot join that channel without joining our Discord. So it actually works out. Um, but right. yes, you should do so. And it'll uh, you could be in office hours in spirit in name whatever that might be in voice possibly if you call that number so why not what is there to lose other than you know i don't know your dignity but we already do that every time so hey you'll be down right down there in the muck with us true but unfortunately for you my day will be ruined probably by more than just what you post in there (laughs) it's my my days are usually ruined by small trivial inconveniences right yeah as it should yes as it should be Anyways, to help keep this show independent and for exclusive access to notes containing all of the research that went into this episode, head on over to our website, SlavicLipod.com. We've got a lot of different tiers of fun perks that you can uh, subscribe to over there. And before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters. Eric, Ben, Jeff, Mai, Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, Anne, Isaac... Emily, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, and Pac-Rob. The music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Peramotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify, and the links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon.